Welcome to Flashback Favorites. I'm Music Mike. Thanks for joining me again. You know, through the years of recorded music, there have been many songs written about infidelity or fooling around. And a couple of songs that do come to mind are Me and Mrs. Jones by Billy Paul from 1972, early 73. And in 1976, We Can't Hide It Anymore by Larry Santos. And now from 1973, a song that made it to number 22 on the Billboard Hot 100, another great fooling around song from Lobo. Here is How Can I Tell Her on Flashback Favorites.
Episode 139, take four. It's rare uh, in the production of the podcast that um, a uh, bit of material takes four takes, but this is what it has taken. And I hope this will do. Um, but uh, the theme is uh, heavy, as you've just heard from Music Mike. And yet the theme is ennobling and beautiful. And it's a theme ultimately that is uh, highly um, um, related to the experience of human hope. And that's why I played that scarifying and really alarming uh, song uh, by Lobo entitled How Can I Tell Her? I had referred to it in an early podcast, as you may remember, because it's just too it's too uh, unsettling and too um, uncomfortable to listen to because it's dealing with um, a an experience that uh, the uncontextualized or decontextualized artist Lobo, and I, I use that in the full uh, sense of the term, and I'm going to talk about decontextualized and universal art and universal truth, and I would like to say uh, universal religion and spirituality in uh, a direct relationship to this um, disfiguring and extraordinary uh, sort of what used to be called soft rock ballad. I think it was number 22 in the country in 1974 during a particular period of time, but I think it actually was 1973. And why it is so um, interesting is because the artist has uh, decided to um, take the voice of the actor in a drama who is actually causing his own suffering. And in doing so, he has um, allowed the actor to speak uh, out of his own heart. That is the, the, the subject of the song, the speaker, to speak out of his own heart in a way that draws, um, I believe, compassion based upon understanding, as in the old phrase, which I honestly believe that to understand all is to forgive all. But there's something very uh, deep, and if I may say, because this is uh, podcast 139, in the spirit of um, of uh, of the Psalter of the 139th Psalm, because what's happened here? Because the writer of the song has decided not to moralize, he it's very clear that there is a terrible burden of guilt on the singer, the speaker, who is about to break up a very empathetic and beautiful and sacrificial relationship on the part of the woman with whom he is living. And he's about to break it up for in favor of the person whom he is speaking. How can I tell her about you? And uh, he's about to do this thing, but the way he has painted it, the way he has described it, she is so terrific, the person whom he is about to um, jilt. Uh, she is so terrific and so touching and obviously also someone who loves to, quote, um, love him at night. So the, there's no question of that being part of it. He is about to jilt her in favor of someone who, quote, does the magic for him in a way such that so powerful is his feeling that he receives from this third party that he is willing to undertake the pain. But there is pain and there is suffering. And why I find this very hopeful is because the singer is not moralizing. He's not, on the one hand, immediately taking the part of the person you don't even see who's not even in the song, but about whom the song is written, which is this wonderful other person, his wife or his, his the woman with whom he lives, on the one hand, nor um, uh, are you um, uh, moralizing from the standpoint of the obvious um, infidelity and adultery of the situation, which is killing him and which is unmistakable and really upsetting because it is, it, you, you, because the speaker is speaking from his own 
uh, heart, you understand the other person who he's about to wound because he appreciates her. So this is a doubly um, disturbing and hurtful song, and yet it's true. Now, this is what I want to say, that art that is non-ideological, that is not either about... Um, uh, you know, a, a a particular view of biblical matrimony, which I hold, by the way, I hold uh, in full, or uh, and in practice, or uh, is it uh, a, um, you know, the man is always the man's fault. The man is an ah, you know, the man is this, and you could do it from a current perspective, which would see him as, by definition, the aggressor. You know, the old thing he can't keep his pants on, the old thing he can't keep his zipper up. You've heard all that kind of talk. That really doesn't do justice either to the way the man himself feels. And what Lobo has done here, without any constraint, or he, he's not thinking in the terms that I'm casting it. Uh, that is to say, he's not sort of seeing that he's some kind of a universal soldier. You know, that has nothing to do with it. He's just, he's just getting into the person who is suffering enormously because he is about to jilt someone who truly loves him in favor of a tremendous physical passion he has for another person. And this is very, um, it's just alarming and uh, disemboweling in the 17th century of the term bowel. And it is absolutely unutterably poignant, the song. Now, what has made it so good is because he is not ideological. And the great thing about the songs of Lobo, to which I've listened, and they vary in quality, and he's done probably hundreds of songs or many, many dozens of songs more recently that I've never heard of, but never listened to. <clears throat> but this particular artist, at when he wrote this song, was getting into an, an individual relationship that is accurate. This this particular drama is being enacted um, by um, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, of our fellow citizens as we uh, as I speak. And he, by the way, is still alive and lives uh, still alive. He's very much alive. And lives not far from where I'm speaking right at this moment. Gosh, I want to meet the man. <clears throat> but I've read interviews, and he doesn't see himself as anything beyond a kind of singer of songs and a kind of writer of, uh, of songs that he hopes will strike a chord. Well, this one strikes a chord, and Music Mike sort of, uh, I gave it to you before, because otherwise at the end of the podcast, and I have something else at the end to play you by this artist. I would have sort of overblown it. I would have talked too much about it. Now you've heard it. And what is it that I want to say? I want to say that to really understand what's going on in the world, you have to decontextualize. That's the point of the podcast. Now, that's a lot of words. What I'm really saying is you want to always go for the universal. You don't want to go for, you know, this is what it's like to live in 2013. Or this, that's what it was like to live in the 1970s. What you really want to say is this is what it's like to be me now and to be living with her or him now and to be having this or that child now and to be having this or that parent now and this and that sibling and this or that job. Now, that's not reductionist. That's simply the way we really are. We really actually do. Um, we, we, we love oldies, not because we are loving the decade, the generality. We love oldies because that was our life. We identified with that was the life that we were leading. It's, you know, it could have been in the 40s, 50s, 60s. It's the day. It's our day. And so to really um, connect with people, you have to decontextualize. And this is something that is very 
Um, when it's done in a church by a preacher, for example, it has a majestic, uh, no, that's not the right word, it has an electric power. My friend uh, Lloyd Fonville uh, has run a the classic still from Bride of Frankenstein, 1935, of when uh, Boris Karloff takes Elsa Lanchester's hand in his uh, to love her, and she screams just before the scream. It's the classic still. You've seen it. Everyone here listening to this has seen the still, and he's called it electric love. Well, electric love, um, that will never die. It's electric love. It's not about a decade or an era. And I want to talk about two other people who, in their own way, uh, to me, are uh, proving the point and uh, embody the point. And then I want to talk about you and me in light of this journey, because, you see, the great point that is ultimately being... um, illuminated or observed is that when uh, this speaker in How Can I Tell Her actually says in words his dilemma in which he is suffering agony, he can't uh, he can't muster up the courage to tell his wife or his true his the other the 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 the, the one who really loves him that he's jilting her. He can't muster up the courage um, because he knows it's such a he no no one needs to tell him that it's a terrible thing. But by uh, a, a destructive, damaging, hurtful, betraying, hurtful, hurtful, hurtful thing, he knows it. But by saying it, by saying it the way he says it, and by praising her for her wonderful. Uh, sacrificial, uh, non-self-absorbed love for him, who's turning out now to be a heel. Um, what is it? Time Wounds All Heels by Nick Lowe. Uh, he is not... Um, he's actually going to, I believe, come very close to solving his problem because when he speaks it, he can see it. The moment he speaks it, he's detaching from his egotistical situation or his ego-bounded situation. And the moment he describes it, he's much more likely to be repelled by himself. He's much more likely to look in the mirror and say, oh my gosh, can is this me? Am I going to do this? And there's actual hope in the song because of its honesty. Now that's what I want to say. The Psalm 139 journey, and I've called this uh, podcast, uh, which is relevant to 139, journey with boo, me, and you for reasons you can already guess, which will come very clear at the end of the cast. But this is a journey of um, understanding that non that, that decontextualized people, prophets, artists, even spiritual or religious people, everyday people can undertake when they take the journey to step outside for a moment and uh, look at what they're actually doing, and then things become altogether less impressive, less addictive, and less com. Puncted. That's Cousin's word for compulsion. But it's a frequent word. You see it in Samuel Johnson. Um, Richard Steele. Hazlitt. Um, You become less compuncted the moment you see the thing for what it is and you name it. And that's why the song has hope. And we're on a kind of journey. Remember what, uh, when, when the artist sees it or when you see what you're doing. Hey, what you're doing to me. You know, the Beatles. When you see it, then you are within yards of no longer having to do it. This uh, is so powerful, and this ultimately is a kind of uh, artistic expression or symbolic expression of 139, because in Psalm 139, the actor, similar to the, that is the agent, similar to the agent of the song, is saying, "'Whither can I flee from thy presence?' I can flee to the uttermost parts of the sea. I can take the wings of the morning and flee to the uttermost reaches or darkness of the sea. Yet thou art with me. 
Thou art with me whether I rise and whether I go. When I am in the deepest of the deep, thou art with me. Because to thee, the darkness is as light as the day. There is no darkness to thee because all is light. Wherever thou art, all is light. Wherever the real is, all is real. And then we see things as they are. This is powerful. And so what um, Lobo, without any self-consciousness, has done in this simple expression of of a true and very poignant suffering situation, he has shed light and in that particular case the reality of the seeing eye the all-seeing eye of the universe god can therefore address this man because you see he's no is he qualitatively worse than the victim well yes at one level of course he is absolutely he's the agent of the job he's he he done the deed uh, is about to do the deed but uh, does god not have a um uh, a forgiving word to the doers of deeds i mean he did say um he did say to the uh, soldiers and the others uh, who were crucifying him, um, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's really important. There are a lot of people who have become Christians or have become converted or influenced by a Christian world, a, a Christian version of love and purposefulness and hope and new being when they were in a terrible situation of an alcoholic uh, depredation or a criminal case, which they are the criminal. I've seen it in prison, but I've seen it outside prison. I've seen it when forgiveness to a person who has actually done wrong, and it happens all the way around. You, uh, you're then, uh, you, the power of being loved as a, uh, what today we might call the agent or perpetrator of the action is just as powerful and sometimes even more galvanizing than if you forget, find yourself being loved and accepted as the victim of the action. Because both are true. God is both with the victim and for the agent of the crime. Now, that's a real, that's a Christian insight. Uh, that's really a Christian insight. There's a, it, it's expressed, I'll tell you where it's expressed. <clears throat> it's expressed in Hatch, Alfred Hitchcock's 1959 thriller, recently in DVD, entitled North by Northwest with Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint. Now, please don't say I'm spoiling this because everybody's seen this movie. It's been out since 1959. But as we all remember, um, uh, and I will not give the exact details of it, the Cary Grant character is uh, deceived by the Eva Marie Saint character using sex as the uh, instrument of the deception and uh, sent to his death. He is consciously, actively, maliciously, with full intent and full knowledge, with absolute, uh, uh, with using, doing things. She actually does things to precipitate a situation, to actually create a situation where this man is sent to his sure death. Later on, however, he does something that uh, is sending her to her death. He uh, creates a situation later on in an auction room in uh, Chicago. Is it Chicago? Yes, I think it's Chicago in which he is doing, he does something that is very likely going to send her to her death. And when he realizes what he has done, she is guilty for what she has done earlier. They both have a lot of forgiving to do. And in the scene where they confront one another truly as man and woman or person to person, they really talk to each other in a scene in the woods under Mount Rushmore towards the end of the movie. He says, well, you know, uh, I hope we'll, we'll, we'll get married. <laughs> she says, is that a, I mean, he says, he ineffectually proposes to her. And she says, is that a proposal? And he says, well, we'll have a lot of, a lot of apologizing to do. Well, <clears throat> she has apologizing to do. And she f- asks him to forgive her 
for the uh, terrible um, action uh, in respect to him that she committed earlier. But he also asks him in his turn to forgive, asks her to forgive him for <coughs> for almost blowing, willfully blowing her cover. Uh, and he, he says, well, we'll both have a lot of forgiving to do. That's very powerful. That's absolutely powerful. They've done a bad thing, but they've surfaced it. Well, um, this is what I believe is opened up by the illumination of the artist Lobo. Why do I laugh? Uh, because it, it's art. You find it where you're going to find it. This is opened up in this situation of illuminating the uh, agenda of the agent of a uh, of a terrible action uh, in the song How Can I Tell Her. Now, I was going to go into, and I'm not going to do it now, I was going to go into uh, Galsworthy as the ultimate decontextualized artist because, you know, we usually think of artists as kind of traveling minstrels, Bacantes, you know, Jerry Garcia, the dead, you know, traveling from place to place, hippies, uh, completely, uh, totally thumbing their nose at all standards or, quote, normal community ideas of right and wrong or what is uh, acceptable behavior and so forth. And Van Gogh, you know, it was sort of slightly insane. Ginsburg, Kerouac, Williams Burroughs, and those people are exist in the arts, obviously. But we don't usually think of them like John Galsworthy, who, had he walked in the room, would have um, was a hearty, but absolutely to the manner-born, upper-middle-class, Herovian, uh, Oxbridge, New College, Oxford train, barrister who happened to be a man of genius insight with a kind of deep spiritual questioning that comes out in the later novels increasingly with great power and uh, this uh, x-ray vision into the human heart, especially people who were like him in the upper middle class at that period before World War II, but after World War One and just before World War One. Well, you see what I'm saying? Um, uh, who would have thought, you know, we would have thought, was, is he Ginsburg? No, he's he's John Galsworthy, and yet his insight is absolutely uh, as, as eviscerating and I said earlier, disemboweling is Allen Ginsberg's in his uh, great poem, Howl, or I think his poem, America, which I think is unbelievable, or that one that I really don't like, but I, I know it's brilliant, his sort of Thanksgiving Day uh, sort of ode. But um, so you see, uh, the same would be true. Because the, the decontextualized artists, the, the, because they're they're hearing something, they're putting up their finger above the above the parapet, and the light is catching their finger, the the light capital L, and and they're given something beyond and above themselves in their context. Uh, Lobo is given something here, and the the the, the illumination of this, uh, I don't want to say sordid, I want to say deeply, deeply unhappy and uh, deeply unfaithful, disloyal. But feeling it, the situation that the man is involved in with the you to whom he is speaking, that that that, that illuminates it. And by illuminating it, it loses its uh, completely absorbing, attached power to totally compunct our experience. Um, I was going to talk about um, Cousins, which I always talk about, but Cousins is a perfect example of this. I mean, he comes from this prep school background, like, you know, uh, he, he goes to Harvard, drops out. He's not a hippie. He's always regarded as a wasp, but uh, erroneously because he writes non-wasp characters with tremendous accuracy and feeling. Uh, people just don't read his books who say, oh, he's the, you know, the Pennsylvania wasp aristocracy. They just haven't read his books because he, he's able to talk about uh, all sorts and conditions of people in Brockton, Massachusetts, uh, in a way that, or Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, in a way that is devastatingly accurate and sympathetic. People just don't read. Um, but I, and I love Cousins, partly because of his uh, um, delectation concerning the Episcopal church. He really understands from the inside out 
even to this day, 2013, the way the Episcopal sort of uh, my oh no, what's the word I want to say? The the Episcopal myopia, but also the Episcopal sort of context, which I've lived my almost my whole life in, um, and in some ways my whole life. Um, he understands that, and he speaks about it with so much understanding and sympathy, and yet, in fact, no faith, no religious faith at all. Uh, but he does speak about the context with sympathy. So I like him. But what do I really get from, from him? I don't get any of those things. I get a, none of those things. What I get from Cousins is a man who is trying to study the trees in order to gain a sense of what the forest is. He is completely without paradigm or meta narrative. He is completely without an understanding of uh, quote on a larger you know stratospheric level. He is not the God's eye view. He is looking at the trees, all the different trees of his experience, and trying uh, rather in a lost way to understand uh, what it is to, to, to understand if there's anything there beyond just the trees. And unfortunately. Unlike Isherwood, who had the same kind of eye, but ultimately a, an unstoppable or irresistible passion to try to find some form of of bigger understanding or picture. Unlike Isherwood, he didn't find it, and he never sort of cracks his way out of the eggshell. You know, the little chick trying to crack his way. If he doesn't, has a limited number of cracks in the energy, and then he gets smothered and dies if he can't get out of the... Getting out of it, and that often happens. What is it like? One quarter of eggs uh, of chicks don't hatch. You know, they can't get out. They don't have enough. For whatever reason, they they aren't able to pickaxe the way to, to to hammer their way out with their with their little uh, claws or hands and head and beak beak mainly. And oh my gosh, and he doesn't make it. And I know that because I I'm 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 up I'm up with his his uh, the way things uh, finished up in his life, and I uh, I see him as a man who use these eagle eyes to understand the trees, but never somehow was able to see a forest. And uh, that's just the way it was. But the power of it is that he sees so much. Decontextualized, it's really um, the view of life as it is. And that's what makes him, there's so much light there. Perhaps more light in Galsworthy because he sees more hope. But what, uh, it's decontextualized. It doesn't have a a rat's ass to do with Kent School or Harvard College or, uh, uh, you know, um, Williamstown Mass where he lived it towards the end of his life. It has everything to do with uh, an attempt to try to find some kind of unifying field theory of uh, his uh, um, tragic uh, understanding of how life dealt its its portion to human beings as he saw it, uh, decontextualized is Lobo. And Lobo, uh, with his uh, able to not uh, try to put any kind of what we today would call a 1960s or 1970s, a Watergate spin, you know, none of that. He's just writing about me and you and a dog named Boo. And that's why his journey was able to take him in such a constructive way in that horrifying. And yet, ultimately, because it tells the truth, hopeful scenario. You might say, if only there were a song three months later that the same speaker could sing. I'm not sure of it. I think he's probably going to end up with the wrong person, not with the person who really loves him. But I think having said it in such poignant, heartfelt ways, and yet standing apart, it's possible that he will find uh, a different uh, conclusion and uh, do what the world and the church might call to be right, but, but only he alone can finally uh, find uh, to be that which is true. And that's, uh, remember what uh, the teacher uh, told uh, Swami Prabhavananda, told Ishwood early on in the game. He said, Chris, uh, purity is simply this, 
telling the truth. Well, um, this journey which Lobo has taken us on the last couple days is now over, but let him have the last word. Thank you. I'm